exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. Live free or die. This is the state motto of the state of New Hampshire where there is no state income tax or sales tax. And New Hampshire is also the state with the highest rate of machine gun ownership per capita. As one of the original 13 colonies, New Hampshire has a long history of defying authority. For instance, before the Revolutionary War, the small town of Grafton ran off British officers who were occupying the town when they came to collect lumber for the king. And even once the war started, the small town of Grafton, New Hampshire, refused to pay taxes even to the colonies. It was always in the blood of Grafton to defy authority and to not pay taxes. And you fast forward to 2004 because Grafton, New Hampshire became a perfect target for libertarian activists to come together and transform it into a libertarian utopia because it was still a small town with few laws and a lot of land for sale. This experiment was called the Free Town Project where libertarians from all over the country moved to Grafton, New Hampshire, and eventually took over the local government and got rid of as many laws and taxes as they could. At one point, the town had one full-time police officer and a single police chief who could not even drive his police car around town because it had broken down and there was not enough money in the budget to have it repaired. And so people lived in peace without the fear of government intervention. That was until the bears showed up. There was no zoning, so people were taking over natural bear habitats. There were no laws on what to do with your trash, so people were just piling it up in their yards, and that attracted bears. There was even one lady who became known as the donut lady because she thought it was fun to feed bears sugar-coated donuts on her back porch and it, because it was her God-given right to do what she wanted with the donuts that she had and the bears that were in her community. If, it was, if the bears happened to go upon someone else's back patio expecting donuts, that was not her problem. And, and black bears normally leave people alone. So that up to this point, there had not been a black bear attack in New Hampshire in over 100 years. But because this town became this hub of food, the bears got more and more aggressive until 2012 when a black bear mauled someone, bringing a new meaning to the motto, live free or die. As Americans... We are a people born suspicious of any and all authority. Our nation was born because we decided to throw off the shackles of England and to become our own rulers. And so as a people, we're fiercely independent. And we tend to view all authority as inherently corrupt. And I think, of course, there's wisdom in putting checks and balances in place. I think there's a lot of wisdom in limiting the government's power over the people. But there is, of course, a fine line between freedom and anarchy. Biblical authority is not a bad thing. Biblically, authority was God's idea. Mankind was actually made in Genesis 2 to rule over the earth and to subdue it. To rule and have authority is at the very core of what it means to be a human being. So if you say, I hate all authority... You're saying, I hate what God created. And the challenge for us is that in Genesis 3, the fall came. And now we're living in a world where sin has come into the world and mankind has twisted and distorted authority into something used to oppress others. So there's a question of what does good, godly, biblical authority actually look like? If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, 
Please open them to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. If you're using a, a pew Bible, Ephesians chapter 6 is on page 1162. And, and as you're turning, let me remind you that, that two weeks ago, we started to look at Paul's household, household code for the Christian family. Household codes were common in the ancient world, and they were always written to the leader of the household on how they were to conduct their affairs and rule over those under their authority. These household codes taught that the patriarch was supposed to rule over his wife, his children, his slaves, because he was superior to everyone else. But when Paul writes his own household code in Ephesians 5 and 6, he talks about these three groups very differently. Like two weeks ago, we saw that, that Christian marriage consists of two equals, not someone who is more valuable and less valuable. That the husband is still called to leave and the wife is still called to submit. But in a Christian marriage, the husband's leadership exists for the good and the benefit of his wife. That husbands are to sacrifice for their wives and to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that's a radically countercultural way of understanding marriage, even today. Today, your spouse is supposed to fulfill you and to make you happy. And if, if they don't, then maybe they're just not the one. And so you should get divorced and find the one who can fulfill you. But in a Christian marriage, each spouse is called to give up what they want and what makes them happy for the good and happiness of the other. And that's what we talked about two weeks ago in Ephesians 5. And now this week, we're going to tackle those next two groups, children and slaves. And once again, we'll see that Paul totally revolutionizes how those in authority are called to treat those who they have authority over. Because in Ephesians 6, we're going to find four ways that Paul redefines these ancient roles. Four ways that Paul redefines these ancient roles. First, children obey your parents in the Lord. We'll find that in verses 1 to 3. Second, in verse 4, fathers disciple your children with tenderness. Third, in verses 5 through 8, slaves serve your master as you would serve Christ. Fourth, in verse 9, masters serve your slaves knowing that God is master of all. And my prayer for us this morning is that even through the outdated example of slavery, my prayer is that we would learn how to embrace whatever role God has placed you and I in biblically. So let's pray and let's see what that looks like. Almighty Lord, as we open your word, we ask that you would open our hearts to understand and embrace your will. Give us minds filled with wisdom and hearts filled with discernment as we seek to understand and implement your commands within our churches. And Lord, as, as I speak, may the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is delivered. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at me to verses one through three. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Stop there. When you read the ancient household codes from philosophers like Aristotle and Plato, they were only written to the head of the house, which is why what we read in these simple verses is so revolutionary because not only does Paul address the children of the house directly, he addresses them before he addresses the father. It's almost as if Paul believes that children were human beings made in God's image. Back in Paul's day, children were seen as subhuman. At this time, Female children were even worth less. But here, Paul deliberately uses a word for children that explicitly applies to both sons and daughters 
because both are called to obey in the Lord. Both are called to obey their parents as an act of worship. Like that phrase, in the Lord, is so important because first off, it means that you shouldn't obey your parents if they tell you to sin, amen? And the same is true for wives and employees and citizens and church members. If someone in authority over you is commanding you to do something that scripture clearly forbids, then you have to say, I must obey God rather than men. Your obedience must be in the Lord. And that phrase, in the Lord, changes everything about what it means to obey. Because now obedience is an act of worship. When your parents tell you what to do, whether it's the dishes or mowing the grass or not to watch this show or that movie, obey as an act of worship regardless of whether you think they're being reasonable. Why? Because their authority over you as your parents is God-given. God gave them that authority and one day they will have to answer for how they wielded that authority. And we're not talking about an abusive parent, right? that's a given, but it does need to be said. If a parent is abusive, then the child's safety, not their submission, is the primary concern. But for your average parents, even even poor parents, even, even bad parents, the command is to obey, for this is right. And if you need an extra motivation, Paul tells the children who obey that they're gonna live longer in the land. What does that mean? Well, when God first gave this command to the Israelites in the Ten Commandments, God was giving these people a new land, the promised land. And in God's covenant with Moses, the terms were pretty clear. If you obey, you're going to be blessed. You're going to have long life. If you disobey, you're going to be cursed. You're going to die. And, and you will eventually be kicked out of that land. But here, Paul's not talking to Israelites living in the land of Israel, is he? No, he's actually talking to a mostly Gentile church living in the Roman Empire outside of the land of Israel in the city of Ephesus. So why is Paul telling them that this promise of a long life applies to them? Well, one, one reason could be that Paul's potentially treating this promise like a proverb. Like, hey, if, you're, if you obey your parents, you will have a much higher likelihood of having a long life. And that's absolutely true. Children, the reason you need to obey your parents when they tell you to do something is because sometimes you're in danger and they don't want you to get hurt. And most parents value their children's lives even above their own. And so trust that your parents want you to live a long and happy life. But also for children who are obeying Christian parents, for those who will listen and obey and receive the gospel that their parents believe in, long life in the land will be theirs. Not in the physical land of Israel, not in the Jerusalem that exists today, but in the new Jerusalem to come. That's why being born into a faithful Christian family is such a blessing because for those who obey their parents, long life, eternal life will be theirs in the true and better promised land. Amen? Now notice real quick, Paul does not say, hey parents, pass on this message after your kids get out of children's church. No, Paul's letters were read to the entire church and it was assumed by Paul that the children would actively be in their service with their parents because in the early church, the the children were never segregated from the adults. Do you know there were no youth groups in the early church? Do you know there was no children's church in Paul's day? In Paul's day, you know who the youth pastors were in the church? Fathers. If you want a picture of the perfect biblical youth ministry, according to the Apostle Paul, it's this. Christian fathers discipling their children. Look to verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. 
God's primary plan for raising up the next generation of Christians is for fathers to be the spiritual leaders of their family. Uh, Preacher Paul Washer once said, if I walked into your church and I said this, how many of you men are purposely, consistently, intentionally discipling your wives and your children? Would it not be true in the typical evangelical church that we'd have men look at each other and laugh and go, what? It wouldn't even really brush up against them. Then if I said this, well, since we're not doing that, then starting now, I'm canceling all the women's groups, all the children's groups, children's church, youth groups, college groups. I'm canceling it all. What would the men do? They would rise up and start screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And you know what I would tell them? You hypocrites, you nullify the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition. I am not against all those kinds of groups, not at all. Whatever the church can do to help and disciple, all, I'm all in favor of it. Don't get me wrong. But let me tell you something. In most churches, what it is, is the church is doing something in order to give all the men in the church the excuse for not obeying God, end quote. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. God's primary plan for raising up the next generation of Christians is for Christian fathers to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And to be clear, both parents are called to disciple and to teach their children. Proverbs 6.20, my son, keep your father's command and do not reject your mother's teaching. Both mothers and fathers share in the task of making their children disciples of Jesus. The father simply bears the primary responsibility. Ladies, I know some of you, you have husbands who are not following Jesus or who are falling down on the job. And in that situation, you are going to need to take the initiative. Timothy, for instance, was raised in a household with a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And even though his father was an unbeliever, his mother and his grandmother were faithful to teach Timothy the scriptures. And that's how Timothy became a believer. In the words of John Wesley, I learned more about Christianity from my mother than from all the theologians in England. Mothers and grandmothers never underestimate the influence you have on your children and your grandchildren and never, 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 never underestimate the power of the word of God. Amen? So why does Paul sing a lot fathers here in verse four? Well, first, because fathers are much more likely to neglect this task. Second, because fathers are much more likely to be harsh with their children or to provoke their children to anger. And third, because fathers, as leaders of their family, will have to give an account for how they led their families. Remember back in Genesis when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, that even though Eve ate the fruit first, God confronted Adam first and called him to answer for what he had done because ultimately it was Adam's job to protect and to care for and to lead his bride. And Adam utterly failed. And the reason Paul singles out fathers here is because God has given fathers the responsibility of leading their families. And one day every father will have to stand before God and have to give an account for how he led his family just like Adam did. And that will be a terrible day for many men. Fathers, God has given you a position of authority and influence within your families that is irreplaceable. And we can even see this when we study the impact that fathers have on their family's faith. One survey found that when a child is the first person in a family to become a Christian, there is only a 3.5% chance that everyone in the household will follow. If the mother is the first person in the family to become a Christian, there is a 17% chance the family will follow. 
However, when the father is the first person in a family to become a Christian, there is a 93% chance the family will follow him into the faith. Fathers, you are the leaders of your family, whether you like it or not. And verse 4 is commanding you to man up and embrace your God-given role within the family. What does this look like? Well, at the bare minimum, it means to make sure that your family is in church every Sunday. And it's your job to get them there. Like, I grew up in a home, a home where my mom was always the one dragging us to church, and we fought her tooth and nail. And so we, we only went to church three or four times a year. It was always pulling hair to get us to church. But I remember when my dad became a Christian and he decided to take charge of his family and he sat me and my brothers down at Texas Roadhouse and he said, we are going to be a church going family now and you are going to to Bible camp. And, And we were upset. We were angry. But after that day, it was never a question of what we were doing on Sunday. And even though it was very much against our will, it was because my dad manned up and said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's how eventually I came to the Lord and one of my brothers came to the Lord. Listen, there, there's, there's this idea out there and I just have to confront it because it's so insane. There's this idea out there that you shouldn't force your kids to go to church because they're gonna grow up resenting your church and they're gonna resent Jesus because they were forced into it. Well, if that's what you believe, then you should not force your kids to brush their teeth. Because if you force a kid to brush their teeth every night, then they'll grow up resenting you and toothbrushes and the dentist because they were forced to do it. If that's what you believe, do not force your kids to go to school or to take medicine or to look both ways when they cross the street. Of course, we want our kids to freely choose the right thing. But when something is important enough, of course, we require our children to do it because it's good for them. And one of the most important things any parent can do is to make sure their kids are in church every Sunday where the Bible is read and the Bible is preached and where they can hear about Jesus and his cross and his blood and everlasting life that he offers. Amen? Because listen, I also say this. We are not raising children our kids to be church people. We're raising them ultimately to be Jesus people. I think that's why so many people resent being raised in the church because they were raised to be church people instead of Jesus people. And being a church person instead of being a Jesus person is like being engaged but never getting married. It's miserable. (coughs) And listen, parents, this is the gospel we must share with our kids over and over and over again. You are a great sinner, but Jesus is a great savior. We were born dead in our sin and rebels against God, but the good news is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came to live the perfect life we could not. He died the death we deserved, and he defeated the enemy we could never have, death itself. And Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father where today he is the one mediator between God and man. And whosoever believes in him will be forgiven their sin and granted everlasting life. This is the message we must preach over and over and over again to our children. (coughs) Because listen, if we raise our kids to obey the commandments of God, but we do not tell them about the grace of God, then we have failed as parents. And fathers and and parents, your job is not only to lead your family on Sundays, but every day. Let me ask you, how often do you read the Bible with your kids? 
How often do you pray for them? How often do you pray with them? How often do you lead your family in family devotions? And what are you doing to ensure that your children become disciples of Jesus? Parents, one day you will have to stand before the Lord and answer these kinds of questions. Children will have to answer for how they obeyed their parents. And parents, especially fathers, will have to answer for how they discipled their children. But now in Paul's household code, we can move on from parents and, uh, and children to slave and masters. Look with me to verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Remember when Aristotle wrote his household code, he only wrote to the head of the household. But once again, not only does Paul address the slaves directly, but once again, he addresses them first, just like he did with the wives and just like he did with the children. (coughs) It's almost as if Paul believes that slaves were human beings made in God's image. Now, before we dive too deep into this verse, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Is Paul, by these verses, endorsing the practice of slavery? And let me say short answer, no, and I'll explain why. First off, when we think of of slavery, we think of American chattel slavery. And American chattel slavery started because African men and women were kidnapped from their homeland and shipped to America as slaves. And the Bible is clear that what went down in America was entirely evil. In fact, you go back to Exodus, we read that anyone who kidnaps someone to be sold is to be put to death. The foundation for American slavery were crimes so evil, the Bible calls for the death penalty. And in verse 5, Paul isn't writing about the kind of slavery we saw in America. In fact, Roman slavery was different than American slavery because the most common way you became a slave in ancient Rome was if you went bankrupt. You couldn't just become bankrupt. So if you borrowed too much money you, and you couldn't bake, pay it back, you became a slave or a bond servant, as our pew Bibles read. Once you worked off your bond, you could go free, and slaves were regularly released from bondage. In fact, one historian said that between 81 and 49 BC, 500,000 Roman slaves were freed, which is probably why Paul urged slaves to seek freedom, if possible, in 1 Corinthians. Paul is not endorsing the institution of slavery. Now, being a slave was still terrible. You were considered property, and in ancient Rome, your master could have you beaten or killed. To be a slave meant that you were less than human, unless, of course, you were a Christian. I don't think that we realize how radical an act communion is, because in communion, you had men and women, adults and children, slaves and masters eating at the same table. Like, can you imagine how scandalous that would have been to the people living back in Paul's day? And in verse 5, Paul addresses slaves directly, and he calls them to willingly serve and obey their masters because they too are filled with the Spirit just like the rest of the church. Therefore, they should obey their masters as they would obey Christ. (coughs) Paul is telling these slaves to view their obedience as an act of worship unto the Lord. And he keeps going in verse six, look with me. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. It's really easy to work when your boss is looking over your shoulder. But Paul says that as Christians, that should not be our motivation. 
That at the end of the day, it's not ultimately about the rewards of our earthly masters that we need to be worried about, but our heavenly master who rewards his servants regardless of their social status. We tend to think that if you want to work for the Lord, you have to be a pastor or a missionary. But here Paul tells us that all work is unto the Lord. Listen to me. All work is ministry, whether you are a mother or a missionary, a plumber or a pastor, a student or a slave. All work is ultimately unto the Lord. And there is no greater motivation for us to work as Christians than the fact that we are actually serving our God. The words that every Christian longs to hear at the end of our final days will be this. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And Paul doesn't just have words for the slaves. He also has some words for the masters. Look to verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. When Paul says do the same, He's telling them to serve their slaves. Masters were to treat others as they wanted to be treaters, including slaves. If they wanted to be respected and served, Paul is telling them they should respect and serve those under their authority, which was utterly unheard of in the ancient world. This kind of relationship between a slave and a master was unimaginable. For instance, Aristotle said this, a slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. Why would you need to respect a slave any more than you would respect a hammer? But in the church, masters were prohibited from being harsh and threatening to their slaves, namely because in the kingdom of God, there is only one master and there is no partiality with him. My prayer this morning was that we would learn how to biblically embrace whatever role God has placed us in because in Ephesians 6, we saw four ways that Paul redefined these ancient roles. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, disciple your children with tenderness. Slaves, serve your masters as you would serve Christ. And masters, serve your slaves knowing God is the master of all. So how are you dealing with the place that God has placed you? Are you bitter and resentful towards those who are in authority over you? Or are you eager to serve them as if you were serving Christ? Do you serve freely, willingly, joyfully? And if you're a person who's in authority over others, how do you treat those under your authority? Fathers, have you been known to provoke your children to anger? Employers, have you been known to treat your employees harshly? To whom much is given, much is required. And there will be a day when everyone in authority will have to account for how they led. And when you stand before the Lord, is that going to be a joyful day or a shameful day? There's a lot of ways this passage speaks to us as Christian employees and employers, children and parents. But this morning I have just three pastoral charges. I have three ways that we can embrace whatever role the Lord has for us. First pastoral charge, be ready to give an account. Be ready to give an account. Death is the great equalizer. No matter how wealthy, how influential, how powerful someone was in the world, on the day of judgment, we will all have to answer to the same master. If you are not a Christian, let me warn you that on that day, you're going to have to answer for every bitter thought, every evil deed. And the bad news is that the wages of sin is death. 
But the good news is that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you will repent of your sin and put your faith alone in the sacrifice of Jesus, then though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And if you're a Christian, there is still a day when we will have to give an account for how we lived as servants of Christ. Because of the gospel, of course, you do not need to fear death or hell. Eternal life is yours right now. But there's also a way in which we will have to answer before God for the ways in which we served him. Eternal life is ours right now, but you were not saved for solitude. You were saved for service. And to whom much is given, much is required. So by the power of God's grace, serve that one day you can hear those words, well, do, well done, my good and faithful servant. Second pastoral charge, commit to family devotions. Commit to family devotions. One of the simplest ways that you can lead your family closer to Jesus is buying by having a daily intentional time of family worship, a time where you can come together to read the Bible, sing, and pray. You know, there's that old saying Zig Ziglar once said, if you aim at nothing, you will hit every time. And so often life will get busy and things will get dropped. And if you do not have a dedicated time of de uh, devoted to worshiping Jesus as a family, you will never do it. Fathers, you are the leaders of your family, whether you like it or not. And Ephesians 6.4 is commanding you to man up and to embrace your God-given role within the family. And your job is not simply to discipline your kids, but also to disciple them. To make sure that not only do they behave, but also to believe. And it's your responsibility to raise your children in the instruction of the Lord. Every father is called to shepherd his family like the Lord shepherds his sheep. Every father is called to lead his family like a pastor leads a church. There, of course, sadly, when some families uh, have a father who is not around and mothers need to take lead, or grandmothers, or grandfathers, or great-grandfathers. But you do not have to be a super Christian to be able to leave your family and family worship. You simply need to know how to read the Bible and to pray and to take responsibility for the discipling and teaching of whatever children are in your care so they may know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. If you don't know where to start, I'd recommend checking the back of your bulletin. I actually gave everyone a simple how-to guide for leading your family in worship. I, my father did a great job of manning up and saying, we're going to be a church-going family, but we still never had family devotions. It was actually only one day when I had a, a friend of mine in, in college who who they had kids and they invited me over to their house and, and there was this time the kids were gonna go down for bed and they said, do you wanna be a part of our family worship time? And so I said, sure, I got nothing else to do. And, and so I, I, I sat and watched this chaotic time where they sang a song with their daughter and she threw a fit and, and yelled and it was crazy, but they simply read scripture and prayed for her. And, and even in the chaos, I, I was impressed and thought like, oh, wow, I could do this. Like, like, like this is something that every family can do where they just sit down, read a chapter or a few verses of the Bible, sing a song and then pray together. Like how simple yet revolutionary this would be for the church as a whole if every Christian family were to embrace this practice. Don't make it long and complicated. Don't feel like you have to preach a 40-minute sermon. Please don't preach a 40-minute sermon. Like for Piper, it takes five to 10 minutes a night when we sit down for family worship. Um, but this is something every family 
I think should embrace because when we go to passages like Deuteronomy 6, that is how we're commanded to teach and instruct our children. And if worship is only something you do on Sunday, your children will take note. So may it be something that, that interjects your entire life. And if you have more questions, nothing would make me happier than to talk to you and to point to more solid resources so that you can disciple and lead your family to know Jesus. Third pastoral charge, welcome children into the service. Welcome children into the service. For the first 1,800 years of church history, it was normal for children of all ages to be a part of a church's worship service. It's only until very recently that the Western church has started to segregate the youth from the adults. But the Sunday worship service was actually designed for Christians of all ages. If Paul expected children to be a part of the worship service in Ephesus, then it would be strange if we did not expect them here. Children learn best by copying, and that's why it's so important that when you bring your kids or your grandkids or your nieces or your nephews or your great-grandkids to church, that they're able to see you sing and to pray and to read the scripture. I know some people who would say, but these kids are too young to understand what's going on. And I would say, amen, absolutely. And you know whose job it is to explain to them what's going on. On a side note, I know we talk about pretty deep stuff on Sundays, but I was able to figure out in Microsoft Word, I put my sermon in this thing and it, it was able to tell me that I preach at a seventh or eighth grade reading level. Like this is deep stuff, but, but I actually try to make it as simple as possible so that if children are in here, they'd be able to comprehend and follow along and to understand what's going on. I also say most kids are a lot smarter than you give them credit for. Um, and let me say that I'm well aware of where we are as a church I have been praying since before I got here that we would see young children in this church again. And I believe the Lord is going to answer that prayer powerfully. And so let me tell you now, church, get ready. I want every one of you to be ready to welcome children into this church with open arms. And that means is if that you hear a baby crying during a sermon, do not get annoyed. Praise the Lord that this child is here and pray to God and thank him that the gospel is being passed down to the next generation. If a kid spills his juice on the carpet, do not get upset. Praise the Lord that we had a kid in the sanctuary in the first place. It is easy to keep the church clean when no one is using it. But I'm praying for crayon markings and color markings on our walls and coffee stains on the carpet. And and, uh, all of it means that we see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. And on that note, all the people said, let's pray. Lord. We ask that you would bless this time by the power of your spirit, that we may have the grace to believe all that you have promised. And Lord, give us the ability to endure and obey all that your word has for us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, If you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.